0: Welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Church. Covenant Grace Church is one church meeting in multiple locations. This message was recorded at our Menifee campus. We're going to look at the book of Job, not the entire book. We're just going to really park on chapter 1, verse 5. That's our principal text. And uh, we'll read verses 1 through 5 for the sake of context in just a little bit. If you don't know where the book of Job is, just let your Bible kind of fall to the middle. It's the Psalms. The book that precedes the Psalms is Job. So, um, there's so much to learn from this book. And we're going to look at four principles of spiritual leadership in the home. Okay, And usually you don't go for parental advice to Job. Right? Most, uh, the book of Job is usually associated with what? Suffering. Suffering pain. Uh, we've seen the, you you've probably often heard, Oh, that man has the patience of Job, right? It's become iconic. It's it's known for the suffering and the endurance of Job and the perseverance of Job. Um, And the main purpose of the book is to show the indestructibility of saving faith. True, genuine saving faith can be tested. uh, It can be tried. But it will not fall apart in suffering. It may be weak. It may buckle here and there, but the effect of suffering on true faith is that it will be strengthened. It's like the forging of steel. And you can see this so clearly by looking at the man Job at the beginning of the book of Job and at the end of the book of Job. And at the beginning of the book of Job, it's really interesting. God himself, in chapter 1, verse, I believe, 8, yes, In chapter 2, verse 3, the testimony of God concerning Job is that there is no one like him on the earth. Can you imagine that? Here God says to Satan, who's, we won't even get into that spiritual warfare aspect of this book, but he tells Satan, the godliest man on earth is this man Job. That's quite a title. I mean, I'd like to have that in a diploma and hang on my wall. God says this of me. This is the godliest man on earth. And yet at the end of the book, once he's gone through his suffering and lost so many things and suffered so much, his growth is exponential in his knowledge and understanding of God. And he compares the difference. At the beginning he says, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear. Chapter 42, verse 5. But then he says, but now my eye sees you. He describes the difference in his growth like the difference between hearing and seeing, like the difference between radio and HD. So the godliest man on earth grew exponentially because of the suffering that God took him through. And that's another thing that we see. It's the suffering that God shepherded him through because we see the sovereignty of God in in the book of Job in suffering. God, guys, has Satan on a leash. In fact, in chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, uh, the sons of God, which is a term for angels in the Old Testament, Satan is before the Lord himself reporting. He's got to report, you know, he's got to file his reports, he's got to go before the Lord God. And uh, God says, you're looking for someone to devour, you're looking for someone to chew up and spit out, have you considered my servant Job, which is quite an astounding thing to think about, right? God is inviting this into Job's life. And Satan's reply to God is, I can't do it. You've encircled a man with your protection. There's a hedge about him. I can't touch him. You've blessed the work of his hands. It's impossible. I've tried to get to Job, but you won't let me. And then God allows Job in the series of the, the first two chapters of the book of Job. He allows Satan to first take Job's possessions away, including his children. And in chapter 2, then God allows Satan to actually afflict Job with disease. But in both cases, God says you can only go so far. You can touch his things. You can't touch him. You can afflict Job, but you can't kill him. We see that God has Satan on a leash. And he can take the worst attacks and designs of the enemy and turn them into something beautiful. We see that especially where? The cross. God took the most heinous, evil, ugly, just dirty plan that hell could hatch and bring to fruition through godless men, the cross, the murder of Jesus, the only perfect holy man to ever live, and he took that murder and he turned it into what? Redemption. Life for everybody who believes. Your life, my life. God is sovereign in our suffering and he allows us to go through suffering. He strengthens us, and he uses suffering to accomplish great, great good. There's so much we can learn from this book, but what we want to park on is verse 5 of chapter 1. If you've got your Bible, if you haven't turned there already, turn to the book of Job. (coughs) Pardon me. Let's just, um, like I said, I want to park it on verse 5, but for the sake of context, let's look at this introductory paragraph. It's a short bio. In verse 1, we have uh, the reference here is to Job's character. Verses two and four, he talks the author when we don't know who the author is. Um, it talks about Job's family in verse three, the wealth index of that day. It's enumerated. His wealth is enumerated for us in, in livestock and so forth. And then, and then verse five, we read about his spiritual leadership. But let's just read that you follow along in your Bible. It says, There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless, upright, fearing God, and what's it mean to fear the Lord, and turning away from evil. Very practical definition. And he had seven sons, and three daughters were born to him. His possession, possessions were also 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants. And that man was the greatest of all the men in the east. That's the, the earthly view of Job. That's how men assessed him. This guy's the greatest guy in the land, right? Verse 4. He, has, he was the architect of this amazing family. And by the way, we're picking up his parenting when Job was uh, the father of grown children. But it says, thus Job did continually in verse 5. So this was his habit from the time they were young to the time they were old. So he's the father of grown children. And his sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day. And they would send and invite their three sisters to each to eat and drink with them. They would literally, for the most important meal of the day, they would eat at one of the brothers' homes. And then the next day they would switch the feast to the other guy's home. And then to the other, to the other, until seven days had passed. They ate together as a blended family multiple times a week. And they loved one another. In a day and age, this is a patriarchal period. Um, Probably Job was a contemporary of of Abraham. He lived to be 200 years old, roughly. So we know that it it fits in that time. His wealth is enumerated in livestock instead of gold and silver. That's the way it was done during the patriarchal period. And during that period... Women were just seen as necessary baggage, okay? The, it was patriarchal, not matriarchal. And in fact, little sisters were just considered kind of like an elf scouring, those little natty things, you know. But Job's sons would send and invite their sisters to eat with them every night. And they would have a feast, it says. That's the word in Hebrew, mishte, which is, means a big old fat hairy, well, I don't know if hairy, but big, big feast. It's the words that is, the word that is used to describe the millennial feasting. The, the, the lamb's supper at the end of time that we will, will participate in will be a mishtih. There's going to be a lot of eating and drinking and joyful, mirthful atmosphere. And Job as the patriarch, as the father was the architect of this amazing familial unity and love. And so we come to the principles of leadership that Job exercised in his home. It says, when the days of feasting had completed their cycle, every eighth day, Job would send and consecrate them, rising up early in the morning and offering burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, perhaps my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts, thus Job did continually. Lord, before we even dive into this verse five, I just pray, our God, that you through your spirit would bring the truth to bear in each and every heart here. Even those young people that yet don't have a husband or a a wife, let alone children. Lord, we pray that uh, you would teach them and encourage them. Lord, we depend on you and ask for your Holy Spirit to accomplish his good and sovereign will in us this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So there are four principles here that I want to look at. And let me just, uh, I'm not going to name them. I'm going to name them as I go along and then repeat them. But the first spiritual principle of leadership in the home that I want to look at is that Job was a man who exercised spiritual leadership in the home because he instructed his children in the ways of the Lord. He instructed his children in the ways of the Lord. And you say, well, Marcello, that's really interesting, and I I think it's a good thing, but where do you see that in the text? I just made it up. (laughs) No, it's one of these principles that you you have to push a little bit of the, the top dirt away, and it just comes up. You can't help but notice this. But you notice, first of all, that I know he instructed his children because he acted as priest for his family. And there are a lot of things that we can say about the priesthood. And we have to be careful because this occurred before the establishment of the Levitical system. Hundreds of years before. So we have to be careful what we read back into this context But we can make a couple of observations regarding the role of a priest, very general observations, the essence of a priest that would definitely apply to the life of Job acting as priest to his family, and you and I, men, as acting as priests to our family. If you were to boil down the essence of what a priest did, what his function was, and I know that sounds kind of gross to boil down a priest down to his essence, it's kind of tarry and pitchy probably, but... A priest basically did two things. Now, the, the book of Leviticus in the Old Testament, the Torah, talks a lot about what their responsibilities are, right? Am I right, Michael? Of course. But the essence of what a priest did, and we see Job acting as a priest for his family, was two, twofold. First of all, he was always pointing his people towards atonement. And of course, In the Levitical system, they had the ceremonial system, and they officiated the temple services and etc. But the point of all that was that they would always point their people to the redemption, to forgiveness of sins, to um, the, 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 the forgiveness that they could find in God. So they were always pointing people towards atonement. And secondly, and we definitely see Job doing that because he offered sacrifices on behalf of all of his children... Secondly, the job of a priest was to lead the people of God to worship through intimacy with God, which involved the preservation and the dissemination of truth. In other words, it was the job of a priest to teach, 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 teach. That's what they did. They would lead the people of God to God through the truth so that they might know God in truth and therefore, therefore worship him as he ought to be worshipped. And that's why Malachi 2.7 says this about the overall office of a priest. He says, for the lips of a priest should preserve knowledge and men should seek instruction from his mouth for he is the messenger of the Lord. So I know he instructed his children in the ways of the Lord because he acted as priest. He was always pointing them towards atonement, towards forgiveness of sin, towards redemption in God. And he was teaching them who God was so that they might worship him in truth. In essence, a priest would act much like a pastor acts with the church today, right? Eric is always pointing us to our need of the cross, towards the gospel, towards redemption, and his job is to teach, teach, teach God's people. That's how Job acted towards his family. He was a priest to his family, so I know he taught his family. He instructed his children. Secondly, I know that he instructed his children because his children were all believers. You say, well, where do you get that one from? I get that. From chapter 42. In fact, turn there, if you would. Chapter 42. And you say, well, let's see why you think they were believers. And then tell me why you thinking they were believers instructs you or tells you that Job taught his children. Okay? But let's pick up the narrative with verse 10. This is after the Lord restores the fortunes of Job. And he says, and the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he prayed for his friends. Very interesting, because his friends, we can't get into this, but let me just mention this. His friends spoke evil of Job, in essence. And they attributed error to God. And God says, yes, they were wrong, but Job, before I bless you so that you don't gloat over them, pray for them. Which I think is amazing of God. But this is when the Lord restores the fortunes of Job. And it says, and the Lord increased, and there's two key words here, all that Job had twofold. The two key words are all and twofold. The scope of God's blessing is everything that Job had. God, at the end of his life, or towards, at the end of this book, promised to restore everything that Job had. Everything. And the second key word is Twofold. That means God was going to double everything that Job had, even though he was, had been so wealthy, he was going to be doubly wealthy. And so we see that in verse 12. And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. And he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, 1,000 female donkeys. And that's exactly double what he had before, isn't it? Simple math. Now look at verse 13. And he had, how many sons? Seven sons, how many daughters? Three daughters, what does that mean? You can say it, ten. Very good, we've got a mathematician, right? You say, now wait a minute. How many children does Job have at the beginning of this narrative? He has seven and three, right? He has ten, seven sons, three daughters. And you say, wait a minute, that's not double. God said that he would double everything Job had, And he did that with the sheep and oxen and all that kind of stuff. But he only gave him 10 children. He lost 10 children. He only gave him 10 more. So what did that mean? You know what that means? It means that God gave him 20 because 10 were already waiting for him in the presence of God. You don't... Oxen and sheep and cattle and livestock and hamsters don't have souls. Horses, Eric, I'm sorry to say, don't have souls. But people do. And so God did double everything that Job had. I can tell you right now that in the presence of God, Job and his wife are enjoying the company and fellowship of their 20 children. And this is just an aside, but doesn't this show us the value of the stewardship of children that God gives us? Guys, it's the only thing that we can pack up and take with us. Job didn't say, and he enjoyed his thousand female donkeys in heaven. He doesn't have those. He doesn't care. The only thing that matters is the eternal souls of these children that he was given. God did double his children. Ten in heaven, ten on earth, twenty together. And this tells us, guys, that his children were believers. You say, well, what makes you say still that he instructed them? What what is it about that they were believers that makes you say that Job must have surely instructed his children? Simply this. Belief implies what? Faith. Faith. But belief is faith. But belief implies knowledge. It implies understanding. You cannot have belief apart from the conveyance of truth. That's the point. And I have no doubt that Job absolutely occupied himself with this one great task. Just as it is the, it is the task of a priest to teach, teach, teach mom and dad, dads especially, by logical priority, it is our job to instruct, instruct, instruct because that's how men and women, little men and women come to have belief and faith in a message and in a person. I have no doubt. Listen, instruction, guys, is basically the chief thrust of instruction to parents in the biblical text. That's why Deuteronomy 6 is absorbed with this. And I, (coughs) I need to preach this Deuteronomy 6 message here again because it's been like three years. But we are to take God's word, his law, Deuteronomy 6 says, and to put it in our inner being, our, our soul, that where we make decisions, where we think, where we feel, where we, in essence, reach out to God and worship. God says, take my law, put it in your inner being, and then pour it out to your children when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you get up, when you lay down, right? As you go. That's the thrust of a parent's responsibility in the home. Spiritual leadership is built around that cornerstone. Instruction, instruction, instruction. Instruction, information, knowledge is the first step and the ongoing step in any relationship. Instruction, knowledge is a prerequisite to a relationship. You can't worship a God you do not know. I remember I was at... um, at a retreat a few years ago, and I had this lady come up to me and said, and I was talking about, you know, having intimacy with God, with Jesus. And she came up to me after the first session and said, I'm so glad you're talking about this because I, I'm i reaching a new place where I just want to know Jesus mystically. And she said this to a Bible teacher, apart from the dead letter of the word. And I told her, you can, that's impossible. I don't think I found it a more diplomatic way of saying that. I just said that's impossible. You can't do that because Jesus is revealed to us in this book. And if you're worshiping a Jesus that's not in this book, you're not worshiping the true Jesus. Because there's lots of Jesus's out there, right? The the Mormons have a Jesus. The Jehovah's Witnesses have a Jesus. Martin Scorsese has a Jesus. But which Jesus are you going to worship? It's the one that's revealed within those pages. And I told her, how did you, I asked her, how did you fall in love with your husband? Well, I, I met him. I thought he was a nice looking guy. I met him and, and we talked and we got to know each other and fell in love. And I said, exactly. It works the same way with God. This is the way it's going to roll. You know, there's a lot of married people here. And this is the way it happened for us. There's a, maybe a few that are engaged. My, my eldest son now is engaged and he's crazy in love with this girl. It's wonderful. But this is the way it's going to happen. For those of you, let's just say gals, for those of you who are, will be married someday in the future, you're going to see this guy and you're going to be attracted to this guy. And you're going to go up and introduce yourself or vice versa. And, and then you're going to go home that first evening and you're talking to your girlfriends about it and say, you know what? He loves pizza. I love pizza. He loves pepperoni pizza. I mean, what are the chances of that? Right? It's kind of superficial, but that's increasingly like, it's a cool thing to know. Then you find out he likes the Dodgers. None of this Fakakta people up in San Francisco, not a Giants fan. That's important to you at that time. And then you go out with him some more and you find out that he loves animals. You love animals. He's kind to all the woodland creatures. You like that? (laughs) And then you start finding deeper, better, like, oh, man, he's crazy about kids. I'm crazy. I want to. What happens? You find out information about that person. The more information you find out about him, you fall in love with him more, right? That's the way it works with God. Job exercised spiritual leadership by instructing his children in the ways of the Lord because he functioned as priest, and that was a priest's job, and because they were believers, and instruction is the cornerstone of that. Spiritual leadership in the home is built around instruction. Secondly, and I took a long time with that one because you have to unearth it a little bit. Job exercised spiritual leadership in the home also because he displayed the priority of worshiping God. He displayed the priority of worshiping God. Look at the first part of verse (coughs) 5. Pardon me. It says, And it came about when the days of feasting had completed their cycle that Job would send and consecrate them. You can stop there for a moment. This basically means that Job would prepare them, call them out physically and prepare them to worship the Lord. It says that Job would send for them. That means that he would physically call them out from their day to day routines and call them to worship physically. It also says that he would consecrate them. And I think what that is alluding to is the fact that Job would prepare his children spiritually to worship. He uh, basically, the word consecrate, by the way, just is the same word from where we get our word for holy. And it just means to set apart. And what Job was doing was basically calling his children out from their their routine and preparing their minds, their hearts, their bodies to worship the Lord. If I can paraphrase what Job might have said to his children, it would be something like, hey, kids, let's focus on the Lord right now. We're going to go worship him. This happened every eighth day. Let's not, you know, think about the game we're going to watch after sacrifice. Let's not be preoccupied with what you want for your birthday. Let, let's not worry about the roast that we're going to eat afterwards. Right now, it's time to worship the Lord. He f- focused their attention, their bodies, their minds on the worship of the Lord, his God. And I'll just be honest with you. This has been a real difficult thing for me through the years. I have failed at this probably more than any other thing. It's, it's hard, right? especially on Sunday mornings because Sunday mornings seem to be a special kind of battleground. I don't know what's going on, but it's hard. You say, well, Marcello, what does this look like preparing our children physically, uh, mentally, spiritually for worship? I can't answer that question specifically in terms of every one of your families because it's going to look so different for all of us, right? Because we're each individuals and we have family members that have a unique character and makeup that are different from mine and yours and others. So it's going to look a little different for all of us, but perhaps some things that this could would look like would be, maybe this means that on Saturday evening or Saturday afternoon, you and I begin to prepare ourselves and our children for worship on Sunday, on Saturday, right? Now, um, maybe that means that for dinner or at dinner time, you know, you bust out your Bible and you read the passage that Pastor Eric is going to preach through the, for the next day, and and just make a couple observations and and begin to talk about it and begin to point their attention to the truth that we're going to consume on Sunday morning. And some of you are saying that well, that may work for some, but I've got little people, and dinner is organized chaos and you spend 90% of your time, I totally get that. I mean, I get that so hard. I understand that because young parents spend 90% of their time cutting up food, <laughs> wiping away little, not wiping away, but cleaning little sticky faces and hands and wiping up spills, right? And it's impossible to have a Bible reading during that time because everything's chaotic and you're just trying to To prevent a food fight. That's true. So maybe instead of reading the Bible at the dinner table, which would be chaotic and get food all over the pages of scripture, maybe what you ought to do is, what what you read to them before they go to bed is biblical in nature. Maybe you take the same passage we're going to study this morning and you read the Jesus Storybook Bible or a parallel passage and, and you have pictures and it's, it's simpler for their little minds to, to comprehend. So maybe it's when they're quieted down and you're putting them to bed that you share you know, the word with them. Maybe you have older kids and dinner time would be a perfect time to break open the Bible and to begin to discuss what you're going to learn Sunday morning. Maybe this means for you that you need to get to bed at a decent hour on Saturday night. Some of you are morning people. Others not so much. And the others that are not so much need a little bit more rest in order to be more functional on, Saturday, on Sunday morning. Maybe that's where you break out your Bible. Over coffee or, or breakfast cereal or whatever. You have to find what works for your family. But one of the things we have to do, guys, like Job, is to prioritize worship for our family so that our kids don't grow up thinking that worship is some kind of benign ritual, that they can just check off at the beginning of the week and move on from there. And whatever this looks like for for you or for me One thing that remains true to prioritize worship is that, guys, we need to make worshiping at our church, whatever that church, if you belong to a different church, then it's that church. But we make worshiping at this church a priority for our family. Not leisure, not sports, not food, not any other passion. All wonderful things that have their place. But it means that on Sunday, we show our kids that coming here is a priority for our family. Meeting with God's people is a priority. Praying with the brothers or the sisters is a priority. Worshiping the Lord in song, hearing the word preached and and interacting with it, that's a priority for us. That's got to be part of our scheme, guys. So, you know, it may look different for you than it does for me, but we need to help our children see the priority of worship. So Job was a man who exercised spiritual leadership in the home because he instructed his children in the ways of the Lord. He displayed the value or the priority of worship and thirdly he modeled the cost of discipleship. He modeled the cost of discipleship or the value of following God. You'll notice that in verse 5 It says that he, Job, would offer offerings on behalf of each of his sons. By the way, even though the Hebrew word sons has the masculine suffix, this is a way of referring to all of the children. Okay, it's just a Hebraism. It's like we use the word uh, mankind to speak of humanity, right? When the Bible uses the word sons, 98% of the time it means children. So he would offer sacrifices, it says, on behalf of all of his children. Not just his sons, but all ten of his children. And you say, well, uh, what's significant about the sacrifices that he would offer here? The the Hebrew word, again, gives us an inkling as to what Job did here when he offered sacrifices. It's it's the Hebrew word. The Hebrew word for burnt offering is the word olah. Not the Spanish word for hello. I'm just watching, and some of you are going, oh, he said hola. That's not Hebrew, that's Spanish, you know. That's Spanish for hello, it is. It's actually almost a technical term in the Old Testament because it refers to whole burnt offerings. And what's unique about that is that this was an offering where the presentation and the dedication of the animal was in its entirety. To to Yahweh. In other words, you took all of the animal and you burnt it before the altar on the altar to Yahweh. And what's unique about that is that in other sacrifices, the priest, for example, would receive a portion of the sacrifice; he would be helped by it. In the case of the Passover lamb, the the worshipper would actually enjoy the Passover lamb; they would consume it. In fact, they had to consume all of it. In the whole burnt offering, all of the animal was dedicated to the Lord. And so the only benefit for the worshiper was the act of worship itself. So it was considered a selfless, costly, wholehearted sacrifice to God. And what's more, these sacrifices, guys, were the best animals that you had. The animals that Job sacrificed were off the top of his inventory. This was the best that he had to offer. And so this means that Job sacrificed no less than 10 choice animals per week. And what I want you to see is this. That means, because he received no benefit from this except the act of worship, that he sacrificed in excess, because we don't know if he sacrificed sacrifices on behalf of himself and his wife, and they probably he probably did. He might have even done a few choice uh, servants, you know, offered sacrifices for them. But that means that he sacrificed some 500 choice animals per year. And in a day and age when your wealth is measured in livestock, that's a significant cost. I mean, that's a huge chunk of your wealth. And I think what this modeled for his sons was the cost of following God, was the cost of discipleship. He, in essence, was saying to his children, look, you give God your best because he does not withhold from you the thing of greatest value, the thing that you could never purchase, forgiveness of sins. And because he loves you redemptively, You've got to give them everything you got. Children need to see that. And we, uh, who of course know the value of Christ, Christ, can attest to that, can't we? The Apostle Peter wrote in 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, it says, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver and gold, from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Guys, that's what we are redeemed with. That's a high price. That's an infinitely costly price that you and I could never, ever pay. And in turn, we should gladly give God our best. I guess the, the question that we have to ask ourselves is, do we model the cost of following Christ to our children? They need to see that. They need to see that serving God, serving his people, is a valued priority for us. God demands and deserves our obedience and our reverence and our best. And that's sometimes hard to do. You know, we're 21st century people. We're very busy, and sometimes we get so busy with life and stuff and activities that we relegate What Paul calls in Romans 12, 1, our our reasonable or spiritual service of worship, we relegate that to the bottom of the pile. So we end up giving God what? What's left over? The blemished, the sickly, the blind sacrifice instead of our very best. That ought not to be. And our children will pick up on that value, guys. If that's what we model, that's what they'll pick up, and that's what they may adopt for their own life. And if they're true to human nature, they're going to lower the standard even more for the next generation because that's the history of mankind. We lower the bar to match expectations, to match behavior, I should say. Job was a man who exercised spiritual leadership in the home because he instructed his children in the ways of the Lord, because he displayed the priority of worship, and because he modeled the cost of discipleship. I really don't have time for this last one. I'll kind of mention it and just quickly go over it. But he also exercised spiritual leadership in the home by shepherding the hearts of his children. By shepherding the hearts of his children. What do I mean by that? Simply this. Job was not nearly as concerned about the externals of his children's lives as he was about what was going on in here. Their heart. And again we we can so easily focus on the outer, can't we? Because we can take things away, we can add things and if the math the math looks right for us, we don't look bad in front of people. You know, we usually modify our children's behavior so that we won't look bad. The constant issue in Job's mind was where's their heart with God? Especially their attitude towards God. Look at, look at verse, the last half of verse 5. And Job said, for Job said, Perhaps my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. You know what the word cursed literally means in Hebrew? Baruchu? It means to bless. To bless. Here it's used euphemistically to mean just the opposite of its intrinsic value. It's a Hebraism again. And we have words like this in English too. It's like when I was growing up, we used the word bad to mean good. I was a concert man. I was really bad. That meant it was really good. It was gnarly. That didn't mean something twisted and deformed and heinous. It meant something that was really slick. Today we use the words wicked like that. That was wicked. That means that was uber cool. And then there's the word that I haven't got used to yet, sick. That was sick. Means that that is beyond cool, right? But I don't know what to do with that one. I mean, somebody walked up to me and said, hey, your sermon was sick. (laughs) It's like, explain yourself. (laughs) You mean it was really good? Oh, no, I had to get up in the middle of it and go throw up, but it was It was sick. So here it's it's defined by the word sin, evil. And the idea here, the sin in view, it's really interesting. It's the idea of becoming indifferent to God and therefore failing to give God the honor and praise and thanks that is due him. And by default, therefore, cursing him. I think Job was concerned that the abundance that his children enjoyed, he was afraid that those temporal things would somehow rob, rob their love of God and replace God and his worship with their own desire for things. Indifference. That's what he was looking for. You know, that's, that's, a, that's a, huge, a huge problem. We need to look into our children and observe constantly to see what their attitude towards God is. Because when they begin to slip into indifference, that's dangerous territory. What is being indifferent to God? It means relegating, relegating him to the, to the realm of the mundane. And that's blasphemy. Because he's the most glorious, beautiful, holy, and righteous being in, in everything in, in the universe. And to relegate him to the mundane is blasphemy. And when we relegate God to the mundane, that means something else is in the throne of our lives, whether it's a thing or things or another person or ourselves, and that's idolatry. So Job was always looking into the hearts of his children, asking them questions. Guys, we need to be observant. And we need to be truthful about what we observe because we as parents are so anxious to see the best in our children that sometimes we're subject to self-deception. But we need to look into their lives and, and, and be prayerful in just thinking about what we see in their, in their hearts and in and, and their behavior. We cannot just blissfully think that everything is going to be okay with our kids. We need to talk to them. We need to be in their lives. We need to be asking questions. We need to be prayerfully observing our children. And this is really interesting because apparently Job's kids are pretty clean cut. We learned that they were probably they were believers. We know that they loved family, they respected their dad. And if anybody could have sat back and said, "Well, you know, I've done pretty good. My children are gone. They're grown and gone. They love their parents. They go to worship." This it could have been Job. He could have just rested on his laurels, but he his vigilance, his parental vigilance would not allow him to back off. Guys, like I said before, we will never stop being the parents of our children. Our roles will morph dramatically. I don't need to call my 30-year-old son and say, hey, have you eaten your bro- broccoli and is your zipper up? <laughs> and I I could probably do some of that with Joshua because he's absent-minded like I am. You know, you... Last semester, he was teaching a class at Palomar, a chemistry class, at Palomar College, and he gets parks his car and starts walking to class, and he realizes I forgot my shoes. <laughs> I, he probably could stand a little more parenting from me, but it, it, that's not my job anymore. But it is my job to say, "Where's your heart with God? Well, what's this, this? What's the value behind what I see? Your words right here. What, what does that mean, Josh?" Rebecca, Aaron, Joe. What's going on in there? Where are your passions? What are you angry about? Or, or, you know, what, what is really turning your crank about the character of God today? Talk to me. That, what, what are you reading in scripture? We need to own their hearts. We need to shepherd their hearts, not just their behavior. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, there's so much more to be said. I even feel a great sense of frustration at not being able to speak my whole mind, I just have too much here. But Lord, I pray that you would take what was said and that you would uh, bring it home to roost, if you will, and uh, teach us what we need to know. I pray for these parents and would-be parents. Lord, I pray that you would help them shepherd the future generations of Christians in biblical integrity, that they would see that, that worshiping is a priority, not only for us, but for them, that they would know that following Jesus means to pick up our cross and follow him, and that may be a very costly thing, but you deserve our very best. And Lord, that they may see, like their parents, that their heart needs to be a heart that has an accurate understanding of you and loves you for who you are. You've been listening to the weekly podcast of the Menifee campus of Covenant Grace Church. If you'd like to know more about Covenant Grace Church, visit us online at covgrace.org.